Thank you, Lucy. Um, I'm very glad to be with you this evening to look at this very important topic. Um, I thank Lucy for the introduction, um, which is slightly better than this email I got recently from the youth office. Dear Father Nick, I hope you're well. We're currently updating our speakers register, yada, yada, yada. You're listed on it. I want to check to see if any of your details have changed. Your current listing is Father Nicholas Pierce, vocations office, phone number, email, <laughs> areas of interest, <laughs> pornography. As, as my very first area of interest. <laughs> 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 So hopefully if you call them now, it has been changed slightly. So um, it now goes vocations, discernment, evangelization, defending the faith, youth leadership, and dealing with pornography addiction, full stop. Um, but as Vin said, it is a very topical and a very important matter for us to discuss as young people and as young Catholics in particular, as people of faith. And it's important not only if it's something that we may be dealing with, but if we want to be good ministers to our, our peers, to our friends, to our families, and particularly those of you who are, are looking towards marriage or are already dating or some of you who are already married and are looking at bringing up children because it is an issue that we're about to see that is affecting children at a younger and younger age and to a greater and greater uh, level than ever before. So it's, it's something that we, we don't often speak about very publicly, but I think it's something that we need to take out of the shadows a little bit um, so that we can all be better equipped to do it. So there's lots of surveys and lots of figures about pornography and um, I suppose it's something that we can start by acknowledging that secular society is starting to at least acknowledge that it may not be as harmless as we first thought. So this was a, a survey that was done by a secular institution. It was done over Facebook and students or young people were asked between the ages of 15 and 29 to respond to a sexual health survey. So they didn't know that it was going to be about pornography in particular, but a series of questions halfway through um, were about the issue of pornography. And I suppose in this sample of young Australians, we see some pretty alarming things. So to start with, of the 258 young men who were surveyed, 257 of them responded that they had viewed pornography at one point or another in their life. And I think one of them lied. <laughs> of the females, we had about 82%, so 558. So it's lower, but I think the first thing to recognise is that it's still very high. What is really alarming is when we start to look at the instance of first viewing. And amongst the young men, 70% of them viewed it at 13 years of age or younger. So I showed these statistics to a group of priests recently and I said, we, we think of this as a high school problem. But the statistics from secular psychologists tell us that it's not a high, high school problem at all, it's a primary school issue. 
And 77% or 80% of the young women viewed it at 14 years of old. So it's not that young women aren't viewing it, but they are viewing it at an older age. So what does that tell us? And then, of course, the frequency. So of the young men, 46 and 39 together makes... Any school teachers in the room? A pretty high percentage are viewing it on a daily or a weekly basis. And most of the young women are in that sort of monthly category. I think it's very interesting when we start to look at how. And this is one of those areas that we've seen a great societal shift in the last five to ten years. So almost all of them are streaming and downloading it on their computer, but primarily on their phones or their internet-enabled devices. I think the most telling figure of all the statistics is that they're almost all doing it alone. And why would, be, why would that be the case if it was something that we wanted to nourish or something that we thought was good or healthy or beautiful, especially for young children? There's three things that really make pornography a challenge for young people in society today. It's free. It's available in large quantities and there are virtually, virtually no age barriers in place. So what for years gone by was something that was hard to get and that you had to sort of summons the courage to go into that news agent or that shop, that petrol station and get to the magazine counter to buy the magazine and hope that you don't get caught and hope you don't get age checked is now delivered instantaneously to the pocket of our children. What the science is telling us is that these images and what they're viewing is now starting to change their brains before they even know it. And because they're doing it alone and because of the great sense of guilt that is then attached to it, they won't share it with their family, they won't share it with their parents. And the only place they can go to try and find answers to explain what's going on and what they're feeling is back online. And a very vicious, dangerous cycle begins. course this is happening in the pockets of every young person who's got a mobile phone or a web-enabled tablet and more often than not the children are smarter with the technology than their parents are one thing and we looked at this in the statistics is that it's really important to Acknowledge that this is not just a problem for young men. 
and I give this talk quite regularly at men's conferences and to men's groups and for Saudi and we're doing a seminar for young men this weekend, but quite often I'll get girls who come to me and say, Father, like, there's, a, there's a talk on the feminine genius over here for young women and then the men get pornography, but the men actually probably need to hear more about the feminine genius and the girls need to hear a little bit more about pornography. Both because there's a high likelihood that you're going to date a guy at some point who has in the past or in the future is struggling with this, or you may be struggling with it yourself. If you haven't read or heard Audrey Assad, the Christian musician's testimony on her own struggle with pornography, um, I really suggest you go home and we might put this link up on our Facebook page. So I suppose if this is the circumstance that we're finding ourselves in, what does this mean for us as young, young Christians, young Catholics? And it's important for us to start by taking a step back and sort of saying, okay, well, what was God's plan? If this isn't God's plan, what was God's plan? So, of course, we go to the book of Genesis, where we find the accounts of the creation of the world. And, of course, we know from our high-quality Catholic education that we all received that the book of Genesis, this is being recorded, isn't it? <laughs> It only took me three minutes to say something that's going to get me in trouble. No. Um, we don't take the book of Genesis literally, but that it tells us truths about our belief of creation. And from the book of Genesis, we understand that at some point in the creative process, God created man and woman as one couple. And he put them in perfect communion with each other, and he put them in perfect communion with the world in which they lived. We see in Genesis 2 that they, they were naked and not ashamed. I'm sure lots of you who have done some theology of the body or studying this, some of this language isn't completely new. So this was the, the perfect order in which God created into the world. And he, he gave human love and the relationship between men and women, a divine plan. And we see this most perfectly fulfilled in marriage today. And in particular in the sacrament of marriage. And on the day of your wedding, Vincent and Kathy got married six months ago? Three months ago? Give them a round of applause. <laughs> You stand before God and before your family and friends, and the priest asks you three questions. Do you remember what they are? I should have warned you. I should have worded you up for this. But these three questions that form the basis of the, the marriage covenant, the contract, allude to us about what we understand to be the very basic truths of marriage and the truths of our human sexuality lived out according to God's plan. So the first question is you're asked, do you freely give of yourselves to each other in marriage? So in order for the sexual act, for our love to be in accordance with God's plan, it must always be a free gift of one person to the other. 
must be something that is faithfully received. Do you promise to be true to each other? I can't even remember the words myself. People tell me about to let you part. So marriage for us is something that must be faithful, lifelong. And finally, it must bear fruit. It must be open to the gift of life that God has to offer. So our... Excuse me. What happened to my chart? Here we go. If we keep the three F's in mind, free, faithful and fruitful, we then can look at all of the different areas of sex and sexuality and sort of see whether or not or how they're in accordance with God's plan or not. So, sex between a husband and wife. It's freely given. It's, it's within the bonds of marriage. It's faithful for life. A lifelong covenant. And it's, it's open to life. If it's God's will, then a child comes from this union. And therefore, big green tick, okay, go for it. So it's a bit like a game of checkers now. If you get a red cross, you can't do it. So next time you're going out on a date, just get your checkers board out and sort of... <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? Like, so we can see where the ones are really, 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 really bad. I think if we were to put in this one, the sexual abuse of minors by Catholic priests and the cover-up by bishops, we'd put an extra 50 red crosses. I've obviously put brackets around some because I suppose the question of sort of premarital sex, is it fruitful? Well, it is by its very nature. But if you're contracepting at the same time, then it becomes a red cross. So I suppose the question then we need to look at is, what's the problem with pornography? If we're going to put pornography on the matrix, where does it fit? And the first thing we see is that it's, it's definitely not free. And it's not free for the people who are in it, in most cases. Sex-packed porn films featuring freshly dyed blondes whose evocative eyes say, I want you, is quite possibly one of the greatest deceptions of all time. Trust me, I know, I did it all the time. I did it for the lust of power and the love of money. I never liked sex, I never wanted sex, and in fact, I was more apt to spend time with Jack Daniels than some of the studs I was paid to fake with. That's right, none of us freshly dyed blondes like doing porn. In fact, we hate it. We hate being touched by strangers who care nothing about us. 
Some women hate it so much that you can hear them vomiting in the bathroom between scenes. Others can be found outside smoking in endless chains and marble lights. But the porn industry wants you to think that we actresses love sex. They want you to think we enjoy being degraded by all kinds of repulsive acts. Does that woman sound free? There's one study in America that was done and examined the deaths of 130 or 129 porn stars over a period of roughly 20 years. And when they analysed the results, they saw an unusually large number of premature deaths caused by drugs, suicide, murder, alcohol abuse, accidental death and disease. When the ages of, of the porn stars was looked at, their average life expectancy was 37 years, where the average life expectancy in America at the moment is 78 years. So I've heard Matt Pratt speak before about the fact that there is a very high percentage chance that the pornography you're watching right now is including a dead person. Where's her freedom, even in death? And of course, there's the question about the freedom of the person who's watching it, who thinks they're free, but who the science now tells us is very much not free. So pornography triggers brain activity in people with compulsive sexual behaviour known commonly as sex addiction, similar to that triggered by drugs in the brains of drug addicts. For the addict, moderation is impossible and they must avoid the substance or activity completely if they're to avoid addictive behaviours. The influence of pornography on adults can be so profound that those who use it have no sense of the extent and which their brains I rewire. Three psychologists and neuroscientists. And I suppose this is where our understanding of the use of pornography has developed over time. And the science has developed. So you can keep the church out of it for a little moment. And when we look at the science behind what it does to the brain, it's pretty scary. Pornography really, unlike other addictions, biologically causes direct release of the most perfect addictive substance, that it causes masturbation, which causes release of the naturally occurring opioids. It does what heroin can't do in effect. The internet is the perfect drug delivery system because you are anonymous, aroused and have role models for these behaviours. To have drugs pumped into your house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, free, and children know how to use it better than grown-ups. The perfect delivery system if we want to have a whole generation of young addicts who will never have the drug out of their mind. We'll talk a little bit later on about the addiction and some, I suppose, tools to overcome. 
But finally, it's, it's not faithful. When sexual activity or pornography is used for personal gratification, rather than as an expression of enduring love in marriage, it becomes a factor contributing to the undermining of wholesome family life. I did um, a school Q&A panel last week and I got asked about pornography and I, I said to the year 12s there, I said, gentlemen, if you really, really want to convince yourself of the problem, I said, go home this evening and Google porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And they're like, what? It's a real thing. And it's, it's, it's a problem that is becoming more and more apparent in marriages now. And this is the challenge for the next generation, that men whose sexuality is so reliant on the watching of pornography, and this can be a problem in particular, or specifically for for Catholic or Christian young men who have refrained from sexual activity before marriage, when they are presented with a naked woman in the flesh, their body cannot do what it is built to do because he has trained himself to be aroused by pixels, not a real human being. So the fidelity and the question of a man's ability to be faithful to his wife in marriage can greatly be affected by what he's doing many years before. It's a great Lewis uh, quote from C.S. Lewis. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself and turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brats. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with the real woman. For the harem is accessible always, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. And this was long before the introduction of the internet. And of course, it's not fruitful. So we've been given this great gift of our sexuality to be given away, that it may bear fruit in the lives of others and the life of the world. Yet, as C.S. Lewis reminds us, pornography and masturbation turns it in on itself. Something that was given to us as a lawful appetite, we use for an unlawful purpose. This particular becomes an issue when it becomes a learned behaviour for children. Because and this is where I can put my vocations director hat on for a moment. When you're 20, 21, 22, and you're considering giving yourself away, either in marriage to one other or to the church in a vocation, to priest of a religious life, 
but you've trained yourself for the previous 10 years that your appetites and your sexuality is to be used for yourself and your own gratification, how much harder is that going to make discernment and finally following your, your vocation, whatever that may be? Pornography teaches others, uh, teaches young people to use others for their own gratification. In turn, it is building a generation of young people who are unable to trust and more importantly, unable to give themselves away in love, but instead are more concerned about what fulfills their own needs. I've got a video that I want to show now. Um, and then we might have a break. So I'll show the video and then we'll have a bit of a break. outside the home again uh, in uh, the local grocery store the local uh, uh, drug store the softcore pornography what people call softcore and it happens it, it happened in stages gradually it doesn't necessarily not to me at least happen overnight once you become addicted to it and I look at this as a kind of addiction uh, like other kinds of addiction of addiction you keep I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic signs of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which which gives you a greater uh, sense of, of, of excitement. Again, I'm talking from personal experience, uh, hard, real personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence and sexual violence. Some people would, would say that, well, I. I've seen that stuff and it doesn't do anything to me. I wasn't a pervert in the sense that, you know, people look at somebody and say, I know there's something wrong with them and just tell. I mean, I, I was essentially a normal person. I had good friends. I, I, uh, I lived a normal life, except for this one small but very potent and very destructive segment of it that I kept very secret and very close to myself and didn't let, let anybody know about it. I'm no social scientist and I haven't done a survey. I mean, I, I don't pretend that I know what John Q. Citizen thinks about this. <clears throat> but I've lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by an addiction to pornography. There's no question about it. The FBI's own study on serial homicide shows that the most common interest among serial killers is pornography. 
and pornography can reach out and snatch a kid out of any house today. He, he snatched me out of my it snatched me out of my home 20, 30 years ago. And, and as diligent as my parents were, uh, and they were diligent in protecting their children, and as good a Christian home as we had, and we had a wonderful Christian home, uh, there is no protection against the kinds that the kinds of influences that are loose in the society that, that, that tolerates. There are kids sitting out there switching the TV dial around and come upon these movies late at night, or I don't know when they're on, but they're on, and any kid can watch them. It's scary when I think what would have happened to me if I had seen. That was scary enough. I mean, that I just ran into stuff outside the home, but to, be, to, to know that children are watching that kind of thing today or can pick up their phone and dial away for it or send away for it. And let's come into the present now because what I'm talking about happened 30, 20, 30 years ago. That is, in my formative stages. And what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is when I see what's on cable TV, <laughs> some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies are, they come into homes today with stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. There is good news. I'm not going to send you home completely depressed, okay? Um, because, obviously, as people of faith, we know that the story didn't end in the Garden of Eden. And as people of faith, we believe in the great and transforming power of the grace of Jesus Christ. Not only in our own lives, but through us, in the world in which we live. I find this um, image really quite powerful for a couple of reasons. One, because St. Paul has obviously fallen, but he can't go any further. He's at the bottom. But his bottom is also a lot further down than anyone else in this room tonight. If any of you, you feel free to put your hands up if you like, in the last few months have publicly called for the execution and overseeing the persecution of Christians, put your hand up. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> For the purpose of the recording, nobody put their hand up. <laughs> Yet St. Paul did. And the grace of Christ was able to bring him out of that and make him arguably the greatest preacher and evangelist in the history of the church. So what, what can God's grace do in our life? So suppose we've got a challenge. And we celebrated week, this, uh, week in the last week 
the feast of St. Ignatius of Riola. And he speaks of the two standards and of a great battle that's going on in the world. And again, we need to picture when he speaks of a battle, not sort of modern warfare, which is done with drones and sort of missiles and from a distance, but a, a big battlefield like that of Braveheart. Ignatius reminds us that there is two, two teams, two sides. And on, on one side you have Lucifer, the Prince of Lies, and his standard. And on the other side you have Christ. And standard's a really great word because it, it means the flag. It's a, a standard bearer, the person who carries the flag at the front of battle. But it also obviously means to us standards, things that we're held account for. And Ignatius tells us that we have, to, we have to choose a side. Whose side are we going to fight on? Whose standard are we going to stand under? So I want to give you my sort of battle plan if we're going to be on the, on the side of Christ. Some tips. And you can either apply these to yourself and your own life, or you can hold on to them for the time that a friend shares with you their own struggle, or you can be thinking about them as to how you might apply them to your, your children and family in a few years' time. The first one is simply prayer and fasting. We're in a spiritual battle. The devil knows our Achilles heel. He knows what tricks to use. He knows how to win us over and to beat us down. So first and above everything else, we need to be praying more. Every day. Many times a day. The Eucharist, primarily. And we also need to be doing some fasting, some penance. As young Australian Catholics, we live pretty comfortable lives. And I think the devil uses that. And we had that talk here earlier in the year by Sister Mary Rachel on Acedia and Sloth. So we need to take on a little bit of fasting. And if pornography if not something, or sexual sin is not something that we're struggling with at the moment, then take some fasting on for somebody else. Take it on for your future spouse. Now. The second one is buy an alarm clock. Go out tomorrow and buy an alarm clock. It's one of those things that sits on your bedside table, red or green lights. Normally you get AM, FM radio. Two reasons. Firstly, I heard a figure last week that 80% of this generation young people sleep with their mobile phone next to their head. Oh, but Father, I need it as an alarm. No, go and buy an alarm clock. <laughs> so, if we're going to succeed in this battle, we need to put physical concrete barriers between us 
and the internet and between us and our devices. Laptops, mobile phones, tablets. Charge them in the lounge room, put them in a plastic tub in the boot of your car, I don't care. You need to find real concrete ways because we're not sell your mobile phone and buy a, a brick phone if, if, you, if you're that brave. <laughs> but otherwise, we've got the internet. We live in an internet-filled culture. Smartphones are part and parcel of what we are now. So we have to start being really smart about how we do it. But the other thing about an alarm clock is that it gets you out of bed and gets you going at the start of the day. We need to start establishing good patterns of life. And we need to start young. And again, we, and I include myself in this, we're a bit of a lazy generation. We've got a bit too much spare time on our hands. And that's when the devil gets in. So having a good pattern of life, which starts at the beginning of the day, St. Jose Maria Escobar speaks about the heroic minute, setting your alarm, Getting up, going, attacking the day. Very important. Guard your senses throughout the day. What am I looking at? What are the conversations that are happening at work, uni, school? What am I reading? What's on my Facebook news feed? Do I need a Facebook news feed? So what we, what we read, what we see, what we discuss, what we fill our minds with throughout the day will be the things that our imagination goes wild with in those times of quietness or boredom or laziness. We need to guard our conversations. And again, this is not always easy because we live in the real world and you go to workplaces and schools and universities with people who don't hold the same values. But this is where it does mean a little bit of courage to be able to change the topic of conversation or walk away from a conversation. Go to confession. Go to confession. Run to confession. Flee to confession. Especially if this is something that you're struggling with. We remember that the confessional is not only a place of forgiveness for the sins that we have confessed, but it's a place where we receive God's grace and we are strengthened. So every time we walk out of the confessional, we are stronger in the areas that we have confessed than what we were when we came in. Find a regular confessor. And I know that's not as easy as it may have been in the past. But in particular, if you are struggling with this area, or you know someone who's struggling with this area, finding someone regular. And be clear and concise and stop with the ridiculous euphemisms. Oh, well, I sort of looked at some slightly um, inappropriate sort of imagery. 
It's pornography, it's pornography. Let's be clear and concise. And be clear and concise, remembering that the church asks us to confess in number and kind. Because it helps the priest. And it may be embarrassing to you, but in a number of ways it may get you off the hook. Because if you come to me and say, I've, oh, bless me, Father, I've sinned, I've, I've viewed pornography and I haven't been nice to my parents and I, I sort of haven't been attentive to my studies and, and that's it. And then I say to you, how many times? And you say, oh, well, five times since my last confession. And I say, when was your last confession? And you say, well, about five days ago. I know that you're struggling with something pretty serious. And my pastoral care for you as a priest and my advice is going to be very different to the guy who maybe has fallen into it once in three or four weeks. So the clearer you can be with your confessor, the more helpful the advice will be that he can give you. Don't... Very wise priests who... Um, some of the priests in the room now and some of the slightly more mature members of the uh, discussion this evening will remember is Father Dennis Ward, who was a Capuchin priest, um, and a very wise man. And he said to me once, don't let the devil trick you into not going to confession. He said, that's where the real victory for the devil is. He can make you fall into sin very easily because we're sinful characters. But as soon as he makes you doubt God's mercy or doubt the need to go to confession or make you think that it's not worth going because you've been already in the last week with the same sins, that's the real trick. That's the real victory for the devil because he's kept you away from the remedy that Christ himself has given to us. Be accountable. If you're struggling in this area, you need to find someone to talk to about it. You need to find some way of keeping account. Jesus gave us the church, gave us each other as disciples for a reason, because he knew the struggle was going to be real. And he knew that we weren't going to get it right all the time. We saw in those stats at the very beginning that this is an issue that is feeds on isolation and feeds on silence. So as soon as you break that silence by sharing with somebody, you take control over it. There's obviously some great software out there. Covenant Eyes is the most common one. You should use it and you should almost be proud of it on your phone rather than ashamed. Oh, what if someone picks up my phone and see I've got a filter on my internet? Where it is a badge of pride. Turn to our blessed mother. Um, I was in Fatima a few weeks ago and I, I prayed for this talk and for a seminar I'm giving on the weekend in particular because a lady um, is a very powerful intercessor, especially in the area of purity. You need to 
be able to try and start identifying the cause, especially if this is something that's got a bit of a hold over you. For most people who are addicted to pornography or boiling on addiction, pornography no longer is about sex and sexuality. And we know this scientifically because, and this is a trick that I sometimes trick themselves into, and I'm, I'm sure young women as well, when I get married and I start having sex, I'll stop. But for the priests in the room and anyone who's done any post-marital counselling will tell you that it's not that easy and it doesn't stop. Marriage is not a magic trick. And for most people, the, the pornography isn't about not having sex. It's being fed by something else. So trying to find what it is that sends you to pornography is going to be a really good way of overcoming it. You need to be able to ask for help. If you're at a point where your use has gone to the point of an addiction, no matter how much prayer, no matter how much penance, you're not going to be able to overcome it on your own. And I think it's important to say that not everyone's addicted to pornography. Some people are just a little bit intemperate. And we haven't put some of those safeguards in place. And we need to be a bit more careful about guarding our senses and all the first steps. But if, if you're a young person or you know a young person who's got to a point, and I suppose there's lots of ways of identifying if it's something that's beyond control. But if it's got to a point you need, and all the science tells us, to reach out to someone who's going to help you to overcome it. Does it mean you're a psychopath and we need to lock you up? No. But does it mean that with a little bit of help and encouragement from someone who knows what they're talking about, you're going to be able to overcome this and live a very happy and fulfilled life? Yes, definitely. One of the great things we know about the brain is that it is plastic. And just as much as we can wire it one way by our behaviours, as soon as we get on top of them and change our behaviours, it will go back to its original form. So if a pornography addict gets to overcome their addiction, the brain will return and all normal function will return. It's one article I read that spoke of it, like someone trudging a path through the woods. And the more you go down the path, the more the path sort of becomes part of the landscape. But as soon as you pick a different path and you trudge the new path, the other path grows over. And in time, it's as if it was never there. So reaching out for help is an important step. And then finally, and this is the, probably the piece of advice I give to young people in the confessional on this matter most more than anything else is you need to find that balance between patience and complacency. I need to be patient with myself. 
and trust in God's mercy. But I need to make sure that I don't fall into complacency and that I make it too easy on myself. And the best place to get that balance right is with a third party like a confessor who knows you better than you know yourself. Some of you were lucky enough, I'm sure, to be at the installation of the Archbishop, um, the new Archbishop of Melbourne last Wednesday, and in his homily, he finished with this line, which I think is a, a really um, poignant line for us as young Catholics. Not just in this area of sexual purity, but in, in our whole lives. And he said, may we prefer nothing to him, to Christ. If we put him first, because he prefers nothing to us. He's already won this battle for us if we're willing to put him first. I just want to fly through really quickly um, a couple of resources. So theporneffect.com and integritystore.com are two really great websites. And Porn Effect has some really great stuff for men and for women. Just going through the women's section today. Article after article after article. Obviously the um, accountability software, so Covenant Eyes, if you haven't heard of it before, it, it helps you remain accountable by monitoring your internet activity. And you share, or your internet history is shared with someone you choose. And again, the, the, it works most successfully when it's not someone who you're scared of, like a priest. Oh, I'm, scared of, I'm scared of what he's going to see. But it's someone that opens up a conversation. And one of the things that I find most helpful is that it, it's not just what you see, but it's when you see it. So your accountability partner sees a graph of what time you're logging onto the internet. So the conversation generally can be more about what are you doing on the internet at 11 o'clock at night? You haven't looked at anything bad, but... Why, why are you still awake? Um, what are you doing scrolling through Facebook? So it opens up a conversation. And there's an app that goes with it, the Victory app. Have we got time for questions? Yeah. Maybe I'll throw back to Lucy and see where we go. Let's give him a round of applause.